Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. Coming up uh, after 2.30, we'll talk about uh, a made-in-Canada vaccine candidate and also a Canadian company uh, that's partnered to manufacture that vaccine. So I I think Canadians have been looking to hear more on that front. So we'll talk about uh, this uh, arrangement with these two companies, where they're at, and why Canada maybe doesn't have more presence in this field. So that's coming up after 2.30. Off the top in this hour, though, a conversation about science and misinformation. I think certainly this pandemic has illustrated uh, that there are consequences to misinformation, both in terms of making this pandemic worse or potentially making it even longer. And fighting misinformation, that's uh, that's a big challenge. Uh, so maybe you need a big response. This week, a new national coalition of independent scientists and communicators uh, have launched a campaign to fight COVID-19, and vaccine misinformation. It's called Science Up First. You can read more at scienceupfirst.com. Joining us to talk more about this effort, uh, one of the founders of it, uh, Timothy Caulfield, Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta, also professor, the Faculty of Law and in the School of Public Health, and director, research director of the Health Law Institute. Professor Caulfield, welcome back to the program. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me on, Rob. So tell us a bit more then about uh, the background on this and, and why there was kind of an impetus for this in the first place. Well, you, you touched on it in your intro. Uh, misinformation has just become an incredible problem. You could say it's one of the defining characteristics of this time is the spread uh, of misinformation, and of course, particularly in the context of, of COVID, and increasingly so in the context of COVID, the COVID vaccine. So we, we wanted to create an initiative that tackled this problem and and went to the source. Now, there is a growing body of evidence that it is largely, not entirely, but largely a social media phenomenon. So what we wanted to do, and this is an evidence, evidence-informed strategy, we wanted to flood, we want to flood social media with the good content, right? We want to get the good, credible information on, on social media. And in order to do that, we want to re- recruit everyone we want to recruit everyone. We want to get tens of thousands of people to help us amplify the good, the good, credible, science-informed information, starting with COVID. But we kind of hope that this will take on a life of its own, you know, science up first, and it'll be a movement that, that lives, lives beyond the pandemic. So I mentioned, uh, you know, the website. There's also a hashtag that, that people can use. So talk about how you're, you're mounting this effort. And, I mean, is, is this about trying to crowd out uh, the nonsense, or, or what do you hope the impact is going to be? So, yeah, we do want to, I don't know if crowding out, it's, you know, because it's near impossible, right, because it's sure. just such yeah. an incredible, you know, ecosystem, information ecosystem. Uh, but, yes, we do want to make the credible information more visible. We want to make it more readily available. 
Um, we also want to give people the tools, you know, the content that they can use to immediately debunk something if they see it, you know, and they, so we, we want to make sure that they have access to the information because we know that works, right? There's growing body of evidence. It may not feel like it, Rob, <laughs> it may not feel like it works, right. but, but long-term and, and in the aggregate, it does work. So we want to give people the tools to do that. And the other thing is we tried to make it incredibly easy to, to join, right? So all you need to do is, is follow Science Up First on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, follow the feed, share the content. So that's really phase one, right? So we want people to share the, the content, the good content. And then, you know, phase two, we're going to get more targeted uh, initiative. But phase one, we really want people to do that. And by the way, the, the team, the steering committee is an incredible group of individuals, you know, epidemiologists, uh, public health experts, infectious disease experts, science communication experts. And, and the other thing I think is really important for the audience to know that this is an in independent organization, right? We're not funded by industry. We, you know, we don't have direct ties to, to government. It really is uh, an independent body trying to, to share credible information. Back to the point about whether debunking works. And, you know, I mean, you, you've been involved specifically in studying this question. So it's not just, you, you know, your, your, your gut or your, you know, your, your sense that, that it's a good idea, that there's research to show it, because it does feel as though, it does seem as though, and, and there's probably some truth to it, that, you know, a lot of misinformation, a lot of these kinds of views, especially when it comes to vaccines, and we've talked before about that, they become very entrenched. And, and there are those for whom, you know, exposure to good information, they almost retrench even further in, in their views, though. So there, there's this interesting concern about the backfire effect, mm -hmm. which I think you're kind of alluding to here. And, 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 and it, it became a very popular view, largely because of a couple of studies that came out around 2010 that suggested that this phenomenon happened. And it's exactly what you described, that, that if you uh, use facts, people just become more entrenched in their views, right? If you meet people with facts, they become more entrenched in their views. And, or, or that you just end up amplifying the misinformation of the conspiracy theory. Most of the research since 2010 uh, has not either either not found a backfire effect to happen, or found it to be rare and very context specific. Okay. So my my bottom line message always is when we talk about the backfire effect is is don't let it scare you away from from debunking from trying to counter misinformation. Of course, you have to do it the right way, right? You have to it's you know just bombarding people with facts may not work. The, the content has to be relevant to people. It has to be shareable. And I also think, Robin, it's sometimes hard to do this. It has to be empathetic. It has to be nice. You know, I think it's, you know, I, you, you follow me on Twitter. You know, it's hard sometimes not to be snarky. <laughs> but, uh, mm -hmm. but I think it really is important to listen to people, hear what their concerns are, and provide them with information that matters. And the other thing I think is really important to, to note here is, is that most people aren't hardcore deniers, right? And I think the phenomenon you're talking about and, and, and why I think so many people think debunking doesn't work is it's, it's those hardcore deniers. They're very loud, and they're the individuals that are, it's very difficult to change their minds. Most people aren't like that, right? Most people are just trying to do the best they can. They want to be accurate. They, they want to do what's best for them and their family and their communities. And, and it's that movable middle, right? And, and we want to get the information to them, and we want to make sure that they're not being infected by the, the rhetoric from the hardcore deniers. Well, and maybe part of the problem, though, is, is that some misinformation, or even conspiracy theories is maybe more accurate, that they're non-falsifiable. I mean, it's one thing to say the vaccine isn't real, because you can 
map out the genome. Here it is. Here's what it looks like. And I, I think there are ways of, of you know, proving that that's false. But I think a lot of what's out there is nonsense, that it's, it's presented in such a way that it is almost non-falsifiable. Well, I, I think you're right. And now, not all of it's like that, right? So, like, let's look at some of the big ones with the vaccine that, you know, causes infertility. No, it doesn't, right? Uh, there's no evidence to suggest that that's the case, that it'll change your DNA. No, there's evidence, no evidence to suggest that, nor is that even really scientifically plausible given how, how the vaccine works. So there are, there are bits of misinformation that we can confront immediately with, with facts. There are other kinds of misinformation or, or questions that, that we can also answer, um, but maybe with, with, without the, you know, the, the same kind of certainty, like the, if, if, uh, masks are a really good example, right? There was so much movement on the mask issue, and that's really about a body of evidence telling us, suggesting that masks are an effective strategy. But that can still be, we can still use science to, to, res, to respond to those kinds, of, uh, those kinds of questions. The ones that I think are really difficult is when it's about ideology and when it's about uh, a, a, a particular philosophy. And unfortunately, we're increasingly seeing that. So, for example, again, masks, anti-vax, a lot of the rhetoric around, around that is now framed as, as um, about choice, right, about liberty, about freedom, which can be very in, intuitively appealing. And research tells us, if that's your entry point into the community, it may be more difficult to change your mind, especially if you're new to the topic. You know, this is the first time you're hearing about it. Uh, you know, I'm for freedom. I'm for choice. I'm for liberty. And, and so those can be very intuitively appealing. So, Rob, what we need to do is get to the misinformation as soon as possible before it takes on that ideological spin. Well, and to that end, I mean, is it possible to quantify, you know, where, where there's more urgency in responding or, or which, you know, it's more important to debunk? If you took two out there theories like uh, A, you know, this, vac this virus was created as a bioweapon versus B, the virus is a hoax. I mean, the, the latter has more real world practical consequences. Both are, are nonsense. Both probably need to be debunked. But in terms of how people respond on a day to day basis, you could argue that it's more important that people acknowledge that it's real as opposed to what, whatever its origins were. So that, there's an example there that do you, do you quantify or prioritize one over the other? You know, that's an excellent question, and our, and our initiative does want to do that. You know, we want to get a sense of what kind of bits of misinformation are trending, what kinds of bits of misinformation seem particularly problematic. For example, misinformation about the vaccine, right? You know, we, that's something that you clearly want to debunk very, very, very quickly and, and in a very targeted manner. But having said that, there, there, is, there is evidence that you, you need to tackle all of this. You know, for example, let me give you a really... A classic example, and that's the 5G technology myth, this idea that right. the pandemic was caused by 5G technology. We didn't take that seriously. I remember when it first started cir circulating, we kind of laughed. I kind of even laughed it off. You know, Woody Harrelson talking about this, the musician mm -hmm. MIA talking about this. Um, and it, it took on a life of its own. And, and then once it, starts to, it started becoming part of the story of particular communities, it becomes very difficult to debunk. The same thing happened with the Bill Gates uh, conspiracy theory, the idea that he started the pandemic to inject microchips in all of us, you know, completely absurd. Who would take that seriously? Well, if you believe some research, 28% of Americans believe that, right? And so the message there is take it all seriously, debunk it uh, in a way that is meaningful and credible before it takes on that kind of ideological spin or, or before it becomes important to an individual's identity. 
the other challenge too though with with uh and, and i think this is still a, a new virus and in in many respects that our, our understanding of it is is evolving and you know certain assumptions we had early on you know i think the, as experience continues here our experience with this virus we, we get a, a better or a different understanding about certain aspects i mean aerosol spread is one that you know they're different um different beliefs or different opinions on to what extent aerosol spread is a factor, how, how concerned we should be, what the research is telling us. So in, in areas where the science is maybe still evolving or, or uncertain, what kind of challenges does that pose? It, it does create challenges. And I referred to masks already, right? We saw that evolution of science yeah. and, and people will use that uncertainty, those who are trying to spread misinformation, to try to discredit um, not just the particular issue, but science more broadly. And we saw that happen with, with masks. We're seeing it happen with, with vaccines. And it's unfair in a number of ways because, of course, we know that's how science works, right? It evolves. Well, exactly. and, and you, that's absolutely what you want to see science-informed regulators do. You want them to adjust their recommendations on, on the best available science. But it raises a more, and I think that maybe this is where your question goes to, you know, how do you communicate uncertainty? Well, there's a very recent study, I believe it was out of Germany, that, that asked that question. And, and people want to hear about the uncertainty. And if you're honest about the uncertainty, you're more likely to build trust. Now, the literature around communicating um, uncertainty is actually very pretty complex. But I, my, my own intuition is that, that that study is correct. You know, we should be honest about the uncertainty, and I don't think it necessarily takes away from the message. You know, I think it, it, it allows the public to, see, to, to watch the science unfold. So let's be, let's be honest about the uncertainty about what we do and don't know. But, but the reality is I sometimes think that we, I, I worry that we get caught up on, on the uncertain details because the core the core, we know what works, right? We know physical mm-hmm. distancing works. We know masks are effective. We know how you're supposed to behave when you have symptoms. And, and often I think that those who are trying to stoke doubt, you know, focus on these areas that, where there is a degree of scientific uncertainty to cast uncertainty over the entire enterprise. Right. And yeah, that's what I was getting at. I mean, you know, honest science acknowledges uncertainty uh, and acknowledges, you know, when, when evidence takes us in a different direction. But, you know, I, I think people seize on that or deniers seize on that to say, aha, see, they don't know everything. And they, they, they try to use that, I think, to, to, to sow doubt. So maybe it gets back to the point you were making then about how to communicate uncertainty. You're right, and that's exactly what what they do, and they've done it in other areas. You know, the vaccines is probably the best example, and we've seen that for decades, right? You know, uh, just trying to instill a degree of doubt, um, and unfortunately, it's it's a it's an effective it's an effective strategy. Um, and I think one of the things that you want to do is you don't want to be dogmatic about a position that you know may change in the future, you know, where the science might evolve. You just be honest about the state of the science. And I still think you can be quite firm about what the recommendation is based on that unce- uncertain science. But, but, Rob, I go back to what I said earlier. For most of the stuff now, we, we've been with this, this pandemic for almost a year. We know that the basics is pretty solid. And the other thing is, is that goes with the vaccine, too. I mean, the science around the vaccines, this is landing on the moon stuff. I mean, incredibly, incredibly impressive. We, we have a really good sense of, of what's going on with these vaccines. Yes, there's details that are still emerging, and we have these new variants emerging. But we know these vaccines are effective, and we have already a lot of data on safety. Um, we shouldn't let these kind of details uh, distract us from, from the truth. 
Well, that's the thing, and I think that's where there's a challenge because we've got the the pandemic misinformation colliding with you know, the sort of anti-vaccine stuff that's been out there forever. I think, you know, as much as it creates an opportunity for us to really tackle this pandemic, it's such a huge challenge when it comes to countering misinformation now. It's huge. And, and they're mobilized and they're organized and they, and they use, you know, narratives and they use documentaries, which I think is actually an underanalyzed form of misinformation. Um, they use they use Facebook groups. They're they're very effective of getting out the, the misinformation. And to be honest with you, that's one of the reasons we thought we needed to start something like uh, Science Up Now. You know, we want to use those same kind of channels to push the good information. And I'll tell you, we rolled out yesterday, and the response was unreal. Right? It was just unreal. And and there, I. I, I really got the sense that there was a hunger for this and that people recognize the need. And, and we do want to make it a movement. We want to make it a community. We want to make it something that sort of has a positive vibe to it. And, and, and I think that people are reacting to that. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. I do like this approach. Scienceupfirst.com uh, is the website. Much more there on this campaign and that hashtag, Scienceupfirst. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks a lot, Rob. All right, take care. Uh, that's uh, Timothy Caulfield, uh, one of the co-founders uh, of the Science of First campaign. Uh, he's out of the University of Alberta, uh, research director of the Health Law Institute, Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, and professor in both faculty of law and at the School of Public Health. So uh, a, an important voice, I, I think, of the campaign for science and countering misinformation. And I do hope this campaign succeeds. I mean, it goes without saying, I think we're all well aware at this point that Canada is uh, very much dependent on foreign-based pharmaceutical companies and to some extent those countries where those uh, those companies are located in order to ensure that we have vaccines uh, to deal with this pandemic. And obviously we've run into some supply issues as of late. And I think a lot of Canadians are wondering, why, why don't we have more of a presence here? Where are the Made in Canada vaccines? Now, there's been some uh, focus recently on uh, Medicago, a Quebec-based company uh, that's uh, fairly far along in, in their trials. But uh, it appears as though they'll also have to rely on foreign manufacturers to develop that vaccine. So that's why this story today is, is so encouraging, uh, that it, it really is uh, a made-in-Canada vaccine. Providence Therapeutics. A biotech company based in Calgary and Toronto has begun clinical trials of its vaccine, which is similar to Pfizer and Moderna uh, with the uh, messenger RNA platform. And they've also uh, partnered with another Calgary company, Northern RNA, which is looking to uh, further expand and develop uh, vaccine manufacturing capacity uh, right here in Calgary. So it's uh, certainly uh, an encouraging story on both fronts. So joining us uh, to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Brad Sorensen, founder and CEO of Providence Therapeutics. Brad, great to have you with us here. Thank you. And also joining us is uh, another Brad. Brad Stevens is president and CEO of Northern RNA. Brad, thanks for joining us here. Thanks for having me, Rob. Appreciate it. All right, so let's start with Brad Sorensen. Uh, just tell us a bit more about your vaccine candidate and, and the path that, that finally got you guys to clinical trials here. Yeah, so uh, I think most Canadians are, are relatively familiar with messenger RNA vaccines. Um, ours is, is, is in that class. Um, and so we, you know, all of our preclinical data um, that we use to get into, into the clinic 
indicates that we are going to be, you know, certainly as good uh, and, and possibly with less side effects as the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. And so, uh, you know, we've been, we, we designed our vaccine back, back in March of 2020, and we've been, you know, steadily progressing it um, to where now we are in the clinic and we actually have already started dosing volunteers last week. And if everything goes well, we will be able to complete our phase one in a couple months, go into phase two, three, and, uh, and complete the whole clinical trial process by the end of this year. You know, and we spoke last year, and I, I know there's been some some concern, maybe some even frustration on your part in terms of you know getting the federal government's attention, making them aware of what what's happening here, and you know getting that support. What, what's that process been like? Um, it hasn't been great. I am just being candid. We've you know mm-hmm. we we spent uh, you know a number of months last year, really between March and and uh, August, you know basically trying and trying and getting nowhere. Um, finally, we kind of came to the realization that we just got to do it on our own and let the let the uh, results speak for themselves. And so we kind of started taking that attitude. And ironically, it was, um, it was the day before Parliament got prorogued. Um, we got bumped down from, from uh, the Strategic Innovation Fund to NRC, uh, which turned out to be a, a real boon for us because we finally, you know, were able to get some stuff done with the NRC, and ultimately they gave us uh, 4.7 million sponsorship for our phase one trial, and uh, and that led to some discussions with another organization called NGen um, that does next generation manufacturing, and um, and we put in a joint application with Northern RNA. Uh, for a $10 million project that is 50% funded. So, um, between the two companies, we, you know, we're putting up, uh, we're putting up $5 million on to develop manufacturing capacity and we're getting a $5 million matching, uh, grant from, from NGEN. Yeah, let me get Brad Stevens in the conversation here. So Northern RNA, uh, tell us a bit more then about, you know, this company's focus. I mean, you know, our mRNA vaccines, I mean, we're, we're just learning about these. This is a new platform, but uh, where, where's your company coming from here? Yeah, uh, yeah Rob, that's, uh, again, thanks for having us. This is an exciting time for, um, obviously, um, this this development, and it's an important and exciting time for, for Calgary. As uh, Brad said, we... We put in a joint submission to the federal government, and uh, we were fortunate to receive uh, some funding. And so we've uh, kicked off our uh, location here in Calgary. We're just on um, just off of Barlow Trail, and uh, that's our goal: is to uh, work with uh, Providence Therapeutics and many others. Our Phase One approach is going to be building some of the important building blocks for uh, messenger RNA. And uh, with a little bit of help from uh, a government again, we will be expanding our current operation to actually make. The vaccine here in uh, Calgary, and uh, we think it will be uh, very exciting for not only our city but for but for our country. Yeah, and I mean, I, I saw the news today. Sanofi is is partnering with Pfizer. I, I think we're going to see a lot of that. Maybe that that uh, you know, and, and Moderna is a company that doesn't really have much uh, a manufacturing arm to begin with. So, you know, there is going to be a need to fill some of those gaps with manufacturing. And I think Canadians have wondered that you know we've made vaccines here before. Why why aren't we able to make these uh, you know these messenger RNA vaccines here? Why, why don't we have more expertise in that? Um, I can speak to that. I mean, messenger RNA as as a technology is extremely new. Um, 
you know, the the approval that uh, that BioNTech slash Pfizer received for their vaccine, uh, you know, at the end of last year, was the first mRNA drug, let alone vaccine, approved ever. And so, because there had never been a you know a commercial mRNA uh, drug, there wasn't infrastructure to support that um, that type of platform worldwide. And now we've been doing mRNA for for years, and we and we knew Providence that this was going to be a problem. You know, getting raw materials, getting manufacturing capacity, and so you know while we were moving our our um, our program forward and getting it ready for the clinic, we've been actively out, you know, securing relationships in Canada, uh, you know, Northern uh, RNA, for example, here to, to fill that need. And so, so this is, you know, uh, the the good news is for, for Calgarians and for, for Canadians in general is that from, from start to finish, we've got the full life cycle of this, of this vaccine and any other future vaccines that are needed available in Canada. So if, if you hear from the government saying, well, we can't produce vaccines in Canada, that's not true. We can. And, 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 and you know, Providence and Northern are demonstrating that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and so Brad Stevens. Then, I mean, uh, on on the the production side, it's it's interesting. I mean, there's there's kind of a simplicity to the concept uh, of the mRNA vaccine, but obviously there's some challenges in in making these and obviously storing them and transporting them. So, what's what's unique about you know this kind of manufacturing? So, um, what we're going to be doing, as I as I indicated, is that we're going to be uh, starting out putting some of the building blocks or or manufacturing some of the raw materials that uh, Providence and many of our other customers will need as part of their messenger RNA vaccine, whether it be for COVID or any other application that it develops in the future. And so, yes, it does take some uh, technical talent to be able to do that. Uh, Yes, there are some um, uh, sticking points as far as um, freezing and and, uh, keeping it frozen, but those things are uh, easily overcome. And uh, with the right people, and we've been able to hire some good young talent, and we're going to hire some more uh, good talent. Many of those things can be um, can be overcome, and um, I, I think we're onto something great here. I think uh, you know Calgary can can be seen as the messenger RNA capital of Canada. There's some great things that can happen as we gain some uh, some manufacturing momentum along with uh, Providence's R and D expertise for sure. Well, that's what's exciting. And, and I mean, obviously, this, this pandemic has been a huge challenge, and it's kind of a wake-up call about future pandemics. But I think, you know, this, this kind of technology has, has so many, you know, opened so many doors in, in all kinds of fields of medicine. And, and let me put it to both of you. I mean, you know, that opportunity then to really build that, that biotech base here to be a, a real player. I mean, are, are, we, are we on the path or what, what more can we do? Oh, certainly we, we get there. Um, you know, the potential of, of mRNA as a platform for medicines is is just emerging. Uh, and all all your listeners have to do is 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 take a look at the at the few mRNA companies that are out there um, that and, and see what type of capital they're able to raise. Um, and, and this is you know these are real companies raising real dollars, and you know the valuations are. Are multiple billions. You know, Moderna's valuation. I think it's sixty billion dollars, and they just yeah. had their very first approved drug. Yeah. Um, you know, 
we build this company in, in, in Calgary and in Alberta, I mean, this could be a major, uh, develop into a major industry for the province. Yeah, and yeah, I would I agree did. with that. Uh, yeah. There's no hesitation there. I, we, we've reached out to the university. We've begun to establish partnerships and, and relationships. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. This is something that uh, that can be done with a little bit of um, government assistance. As we, you know, a week we expand um, into our next phase, we were thinking, you know, maybe a few months down the line, but the interest is uh, really overwhelming. And with a little bit of support, I think we can, you know, we can get to a, a place very quickly where we can triple the size of the staff and increase jobs and diversify the economy here in Calgary. I, I, I agree with uh, Brad's sentiment. This is, this, is, uh, this is doable for Calgary for sure. Yeah, and, and for Brad Sorensen, I mean, you know, look, Canada has agreements in place with some of the big companies, obviously, and, you know, we'll, we'll certainly have an abundance of supply by later this year. But, I mean, going forwards and, you know, potentially the need to supply other countries or the need for this to become uh, almost a, an annual ritual as we, we keep this virus at bay. I mean, what, what do you see as the longer term picture for, for the need for vaccines? Oh, it's... There's a lot of lot of potential here. Um, what you're likely going to see, I mean, the power of mRNA is that you can actually, you know, you're not people aren't going to have to go and get a whole bunch of different vaccines. Um, sure. You know, you'll be able to within within a single mRNA vaccine, you'll be able to package whatever is needed for that year for COVID with whatever is needed that year for for influenza. And, you know, so again, with the mind of making it simpler uh, for, for you know, the, the end consumer uh, not wanting to have to, to interrupt their lifestyle overly, um, you'll do that. And like I said, being able to quickly identify variants um, and, and, and make changes on the fly and respond to that, that's, that's the future. I mean... COVID is what they refer to as endemic, meaning it's it's not going away. It's 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 reached a penetration level in the global population that you're not going to eradicate it, um, and so you're now looking at managing it, and and that's why it's so important that we have this capacity in Canada, and uh, you know being a being a Calgarian, you know, born and bred, and you know I'm I'm happy to be able to to be doing it here, and so. Um, you know, and I'm happy to have a company like Northern RNA to to be there and, and, and work with us. And by the way, and uh, ProvidenceTherapeutics.com, much worth the website. And we, we've had a few uh, calls up there wondering if, if you're looking for volunteers for any of these trials or, or for people to, to get involved. Is, uh, is is there still an opportunity for that? Um, that's actually kind of funny. I've, I've, uh, so... You know, we do we do a really good job of of making a vaccine and designing it. Uh, we've we've hired a comp- an organization. It's called the CRO uh, Contract Research Organization to run our clinical trial. And um, <clears throat> and after that point in time, we're actually blinded to it as a company. Um, oh, is that right? So, okay. Yeah. So so you know, we we've made all the vaccines. We've sent the vaccines to the to the CRO that's running it, and and so. You know, I've got I got friends and folks in Calgary saying, "Hey, how do I get in on this?" I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't so. even get in on it. Um, <laughs> but but uh, so our phase one is in Toronto. But I I do know that when we when we go into phase two and phase three, we'll have multiple centers across Canada, and so we expect that we will be recruiting um, 
volunteers from Alberta, um, you know, later this year uh, as we continue this this clinical trial process. All right. Well, it's all very exciting. Congrats, uh, congratulations to you both, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Brad Sorensen, Brad Stevens, uh, much appreciated. Thanks, Rob. All right, thanks, guys. There you go. Uh, the two Brads, Brad Sorensen, Brad Stevens, uh, with um, Providence Therapeutics and Northern RNA, respectively. So great partnership. And let's hope governments take notice here that this this exists here. This expertise exists here. This capability exists here. How do we foster it? You know, how do we ensure that as this becomes a, a, a significant industry going forward, uh, that we've got a presence, we've got a footprint, that we're, we're a part of this. And it certainly opens doors. I think we look at, you know, what uh, the future looks like for this city. You know, all the talk about uh, diversification. Well, here's an obvious avenue to build off of. Uh, but off the top of this hour, I wanted to uh, talk about the uh, status um, around the 2020 Summer Olympics, which, of course, became the 2021 Summer Olympics. Uh, Tokyo uh, set to host the, those Olympics last year became pretty obvious at the outset of the pandemic. Maybe not as obvious as quickly as it should have been to the IOC, but uh, that it was a no-go. So the decision was made to postpone the Olympics until this coming summer, the summer of 2021. Maybe at the time, it seemed like a reasonable expectation that things would more or less be back to normal by the summer. Uh, sitting here in late January, that's a little less clear. And so there, there's certainly a lot of trepidation in Tokyo and in Japan about the idea of hosting the games and having the world descend upon a country uh, that is dealing with its own surge in COVID cases. Now, there were some conflicting stories last week about whether a decision had been made. Sounds as though maybe Tokyo officials have concluded that the games can't go ahead. They're insisting otherwise publicly. The IOC is insisting everything's fine, but uh, there appears to be a growing backlash uh, in Tokyo at the idea of hosting the games. Uh, so joining us to talk a bit more about uh, what, what seems to be going on behind the scenes, why there's such an insistence in hosting the games this summer, what happens if the games don't go ahead, what does it mean for Tokyo, what does it mean for the uh, IOC? So some pretty big questions on, on all of those fronts. Uh, joining us to talk more about it all is uh, Jules Boykoff. He's a professor and department chair at uh, Pacific University in Oregon. The Department of Politics and Government has written extensively about the Olympics. Uh, much more his website, JulesBoykov.org. Professor Boykov, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks. It's good to be back. So... Let me ask you the, the question, first of all, based on everything you're hearing and seeing, what, what do you think the chances are that the, the games are going to go ahead this summer? Well, I think the chances are slim that we'll see a traditional Olympics with fans in the seats and a regular opening ceremonies where everybody marches together in a full Olympic village with athletes from around the world spending a few weeks in Tokyo. That is probably not going to happen what I think is probably more likely is that the International Olympic Committee, in partnership with the Tokyo organizers, will push for a, a Games that has less people in attendance, if anybody in attendance, and that will probably shuffle athletes in and out for shorter periods of time, dialing back things like the opening ceremonies that will have much fewer athletes and that sort of thing. That's the kind of ideas that have been moving around Olympic circles recently. The reason why I say that the games would go on 
despite the fact that we're in sort of a raging global pandemic, is because the International Olympic Committee has so much money at stake. Because I'm sure your listeners are like, what, Olympics, an optional sporting spectacle amid a global pandemic? That sounds weird. And it does. Mm -hmm. But if you think about the money shuffle, it makes a little bit more sense. So who's calling the shots here? I mean, is, is it really still the IOC or to what extent are our officials in Tokyo or, or even in Japan's federal government uh, involved in the decision making process? Well, in theory, both the Tokyo organizers as well as elected officials inside of Japan have some say in the matter. Of course, the International Olympic Committee, based in, based in Lausanne, Switzerland, has enormous influence in the process, or quite a bit at stake. You know, it's hard for me to say exactly who has their hands on the wheel at this moment. They don't let me in the room, as I'm sure you can imagine. Yes. These are pretty tightly closed meetings to the public. Um, but I think, at least in theory, it's a partnership at this point. What's at stake here, though, for the IOC? I mean, you know, theoretically, this could be postponed yet again, uh, but, but it seems like it, it all kind of hinges. I, I'm, I'm not sure what exactly, but they, they just seem to have drawn this line in the sand that the games have to be a go this summer. Why, why do you think that is? Well, from the IOC's perspective, the International Olympic Committee, they get most of their revenue from broadcaster fees. To be more precise, they get 73% of their revenues from broadcaster fees. Like here in the United States, NBC pays an enormous sum of money to broadcast the Olympics. And so that accounts for part of it. And that also accounts for the fact that the International Olympic Committee is willing to probably do a more scaled-back games that doesn't include spectators. So long as it's a major TV event, they can keep that money flowing from broadcasters' coffers to their own coffers. So there's that. There's also the corporate sponsors that make up another big piece of the IOC pie in terms of its revenues. They have 18% of the revenues that come from corporate sponsors, worldwide sponsors like Alibaba, Panasonic, Visa, etc. And they have to keep those sponsors happy. What happens if there's no Olympics? This is a big moment for these firms that have forked over millions of dollars to get their names out there associated with the Olympic brand, which despite all its problems actually still has a general halo around it. So long as it's not happening in your city, the Olympics are generally pretty popular with the general public. Well, and but maybe not these games. Uh, there was a poll out uh, just a few days ago that um, 80% opposition in, uh, is it in Japan as a whole or was this in Tokyo? But either way, there, there seems to be quite a pushback against the idea of going ahead with these games. No doubt about it. I mean, this is amazing what we're seeing right now, Rob. 80% either want cancellation or yet another postponement. We haven't seen numbers like this in any recent Olympic Games. And it is remarkable, and I think you can point to a lot of different factors that help explain it. For starters, the public in Japan was told that these Olympics were only going to cost about $7.3 billion. That's when it was back in 2013, and they were bidding on the Olympics, $7.3 billion. But instead, costs have spiraled to well over four times that. I talked to an economist this morning who follows these kind of matters, and he thinks it's up in the neighborhood of $35 billion. So it went from $7 billion to $35 billion. If you listen to the Japanese government itself, they'll tell you that it was $26 billion at least, and that was before the delay. So, right. you know, a conservative estimate, let's just say $30 billion. And if you're looking at that as a taxpayer in Japan, because almost all of it is paid for by the taxpayer, only around 6 to $7 billion of that is paid for in private entities, you're going, what? We're paying for this? Second, you know, you've, as you mentioned in the lead-in, the amount of cases of COVID are rising right now in Japan. 
And another thing that really matters is that the uh, vaccination program that's rolling out in Japan is rolling out relatively slowly. It looks like no one's been vaccinated really yet, and, and they don't think that the whole population will be vaccinated until the end of May, and that's pretty optimistic. Put on top of that the fact that a lot of people in Japan are reticent about talking about the vaccination because they don't necessarily think it's the best course of action. Around half the Japanese population in one poll I saw is pretty nervous about vaccinations and not exactly excited about it. So they have a lot of issues that they're grappling with right now that are truly a matter of life and death. So you can kind of understand from the perspective of the Japanese public, they're like, what, we're going to import a bunch of people from around the world, especially places like coronavirus hot zones, like the country I'm coming to you from in the United States. We're going to have them come over and bring more of this deadly disease to our population. No thanks. You know, let's take care of this once and for all and then move on from there. And on the the question of vaccines, this was was quite something a few weeks ago. And I I guess, you know, the IOC, (laughs) it's not the first time maybe we've heard something toned down from somebody at the IOC, but it was a Canadian uh, in this instance, uh, Dick Pound, suggesting that Olympic athletes should get priority access to vaccines. So what did you make of that? Well, Dick Pound, one big benefit of the Canadian member of the International Olympic Committee is that, you know, he's been around the International Olympic Committee longer than anyone else who's a current member. And he'll tell you what he actually thinks. And oftentimes, you know, you have to sort of assume that what he's saying and has the guts to say in public is something that's being said behind closed doors among the IOC. And sure, they're desperate to have this thing go on. The games must go on from their perspective so they can keep the money flowing and hopping. And, and there's also a certain amount of ego among folks at the International Olympic Committee. They think the Olympics are the be-all, end-all, most important thing in the world and that kind of thing. So they're pretty comfortable, I'm assuming, having folks jump the line, if you will, jump the queue. And, it's, of course, on the regular public, it's a pretty tone-deaf thing. I mean, thinking about, like, there's a lot of need in these different countries and to have these Olympians jump the line. Where does the line then uh, ultimately end? Do their families get to go? Of course, the medics would need to get vaccinated. There are so many questions from the perspectives of athletes. And, you know, Rob, I talk to Olympic athletes behind the scenes all the time, and there are serious concerns about the way the International Olympic Committee and Tokyo organizers are organizing this and talking about this. Just for one example of what I'm talking about <clears throat> related to vaccinations, are they going to be forced to get a vaccination before mm-hmm. they go there? They might have long quarantine periods if they don't get vaccinated. Will they be able to access it? If you're from a country in uh, the global south, you might not even have the opportunity. Your country might be way at the back of the line, um, which is a horrible thing, but it's true. And unfortunately, the way the vaccines rolled out. So there's all sorts of questions. In addition to the fact that a lot of athletes are wondering, will I have to sign a waiver to participate in Tokyo? It basically says I won't sue the IOC if I develop COVID and maybe myocarditis and have long-term problems from this. So, so many questions are, are, are looming from the perspective of the athlete that are also kind of slowing down this train a little bit. There was some some talk out of Florida today about making an offer to to take on the Olympic Games, and and I don't know how serious that was. But is the idea of of moving them somewhere else is is that being considered at all? It's funny, you know. When I saw that, I actually thought it was an onion piece, but in reality, <laughs> it was put out by the Florida Chief Financial Officer Jimmy Petronas. Apparently, he he sent a letter to the International Olympic Committee asking them to relocate those Olympics from Tokyo to Florida, like as if Florida is some kind of wreck of a COVID-free zone. It's absolutely Mm -hmm. not. I mean, it's really not the place you probably want to go, world. I'm just uh, telling you from here in the United States. 
I wouldn't do it. But, you know, leave it to the Sunshine State to uh, really go for it like that. After all, they are hosting the Super Bowl and, and other yeah. events right now as if nothing is going on. And that's kind of actually part of their argument. I mean, they don't say it, but the basic argument is, look, we're so irresponsible. We'll have anybody come into the state. We don't care about it. We'll make us a little <laughs> bit of money. I don't think this is something to t- be taken seriously. I mean, it takes an enormous amount of infrastructure to create the Olympics. There's all these specialized venues from the velodrome to you name it. So I don't think the games can just be popped over to Florida in a matter of a couple of months as much as the CFO and the CFO sort of might like that. The other thing, too, is, you know, we, we start to, to get closer to, you know, the talk of the, the Winter Olympics, the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. And look, I'm, I'm sure there is zero chance that China is going to delay that. Uh, China loves this this opportunity, this platform. The idea, though, that if the Tokyo Games don't go ahead and, and China gets to host the first post-pandemic Olympics, how, how do you think that plays into you know China using the games as as a propaganda tool? And obviously, there there are other concerns, human rights concerns uh, around China hosting the games this time. Well, pretty much any country that gets the Olympics uses it as a propaganda opportunity in one way or another. Um, China, as you mentioned has all sorts of human rights problems. But absolutely, it should be pointed out, do not chime with the sentiments that are buried everywhere in the Olympic Charter, talking about freedom and using sport for uh, creating opportunities for people, no discrimination, and all that beautiful stuff that's in the Olympic Charter, absolutely clashing against the reality on the ground in China. And it's not as if the International Olympic Committee didn't know that. I mean, the 2008 Summer Olympics took place in Beijing, and there were massive crackdowns, massive relocations. More than a million people lost their homes to make way for Olympic venues and so on. And, and yet the, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, basically said, oh, that's okay. You know, we'll get you back for the 2022 Olympics. I do think there's a little bit of truth to the rivalry between China and Japan in the sense that I think people in Japan might feel crummy if they weren't able to pull off the Olympics and China does only a few months later the Winter Games. But, you know, that's still a little bit of uh, country pride or nationalism isn't exactly like the reason for putting the whole population at risk. It'll be interesting to see what, what happens with, with Beijing. It'll be the first city to host the winter and the summer games, but the pressure is really ramping up. I mean, with the more information that comes out about the Muslim Uyghur population that's being treated extremely poorly, there are massive human rights violations. And the pressure is ramping up. And even here in the United States, we've had senators from the U.S. Senate suggesting that the game should be moved from Beijing. And, of course, here, at least in the United States, China is sort of a bipartisan punching bag. So we kind of have to keep that in mind with any time we talk about it. But, yeah, they're using it as a propaganda opportunity, just like most other countries do. Well, we'll leave it there for now. See what unfolds in the coming weeks here. Professor Boykoff, appreciate the insight on all this stuff. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Nice to talk to you, Rob. Take care. Likewise, much appreciated. Uh, Jules Boykoff, uh, professor, uh, department chair of the Department of Politics and Government, Pacific University in, uh, in Oregon. JulesBoykoff.org, and uh, he's written a few books uh, about the Olympics, very much a, a critic uh, of the IOC. So a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen with the uh, Summer Olympics this summer in Tokyo, whether that's uh, even going to happen. And, uh, of course, the question of whether it should. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.